Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 75. Wow, that's like a diamond anniversary or something. Um, thank you for continuing to listen and tune in to the Agents of Innovation podcast, 75 episodes. It's almost hard for me to speak those words out of my mouth because I would have never guessed that I would have had this many guests. Um, and so uh, they've all been incredible. I'm telling you, we've got another great one today, Eric Wind. He is the president and founder of Wind Vintage. He is a vintage watch dealer, uh, very unique uh, entrepreneur who we've had on this podcast. You don't really encounter too many people who do what Eric does, but you also don't probably really encounter that many vintage watches. There's many of them out there. And I've learned there's probably friends listening now that are really into these vintage watches. Uh, as you'll hear on this interview, I'm not really personally into these things. Um, I'm not really even much of a watch guy myself, but we'll um, we'll see. Maybe maybe things will change because Eric has enlightened me on this conversation, and it's just uh, something unique we're going to bring to you here. So uh, thank you for listening. Also, at the end of this episode, you know, just like we want to make our products last, maybe we want to make our watches last. We also have things that are made to last. And we're going to have a song by Andrew Leahy called Make It Last. Make It Last. And so uh, Andrew Leahy was one of our guests way back here about a year ago on the Agents of Innovation podcast, a great musician uh, who lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And actually, right before this entire coronavirus started, there was a tornado that ripped through downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I may have talked about this on a previous episode, but Andrew played a venue that night in in um, in a, a very historic neighborhood in Nashville, Tennessee. Went across the street, grabbed some pizza, got in his car, went home. Just minutes after he left the venue and the pizza place, which were right next to each other. Those places were destroyed by a tornado. He was the last place, last um, last artist, part of a band, to play that venue before it was destroyed by the tornado. And he actually literally saw the tornado go across the street as he was driving home. So he's a crazy story. Go look it up. Uh, but he survived, and that's great. And actually, through this time of coronavirus, Andrew, like many musicians, has been taking to online concerts. And actually, he's been doing one every week, and I've been enjoying them almost every week. It's been great to have Andrew Leahy coming into my living room uh, through my Facebook Live or Instagram, however you look at these things. I, I put some of them up on the TV because I just connect my computer to the TV. So I'll sit there and enjoy a live, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of Andrew playing song requests from people chiming in. And sometimes I go and sit on my balcony and smoke a cigar and bring my computer out there and and listen to Andrew. And uh, there was one day a, a week or two ago where 
Um, I was actually doing some work kind of late around eight or nine o'clock at night in my little home office. And I was looking at Facebook and all of a sudden Andrew's Facebook live. So I put it in the corner while I was doing work. And so he's been in my living room. He's been on my balcony with me smoking cigars and he's been in my office. Um, And so it really stinks that there's a pandemic going on, that it's taken a lot of lives and it's it's shut down an economy. And But it's really been interesting to see the innovative things people are doing, including many of the people that have been on this podcast, uh, especially the musicians who are trying to engage with fans. They're going to be in a really, really tough spot here soon because this is the way they make a living and they can't get out and play shows. They're going to probably be the last thing to open up once things start reopening. So keep them in mind. And I thought we'd actually send off this episode with his song, Make It Last, which I really love. And uh, I thought it would go well with somebody who's talking about vintage watches. He's making those last. And you might be partaking in making them tick and talk on your watch, on your wrist. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks for tuning in, going to our website, agentsofinnovation.org, where we write blog posts about every single episode we've done. You can get a recap of that. Also... We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. All those can be found at agentsofinnovation.org or wherever you are on social media, as well as I hope you are subscribed to this podcast, whether it be on Apple Music, uh, whether it be on your Apple Podcast Player, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm glad you're listening to this one. And thank you so much. And thanks for listening. And here we go, Eric Wind, Vintage Watches. I want to welcome my friend Eric Wind to the Agents of Innovation podcast. We are here in his home office in West Palm Beach, Florida. Eric, thank you for joining us on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks for having me, Francisca. Well, um, Eric, uh, just to introduce you a little bit more to our audience, uh, you own Wind Vintage, which is a company dedicated to offering exceptional watches for sale at all price points and providing advisory services to top vintage watch collectors worldwide. Uh, previously, before you went out on your own here uh, with Wind Vintage, you served as the vice president and senior specialist for Christie's where you helped lead the sale of a number of important watches at auction around the world and through private treaty. Um, Eric has been featured and quoted in a number of publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Hodinkee, the Chicago Tribune, Men's Health Magazine, Rob Report, and Business of Fashion. So you can find everything about Eric Wind at windvintage.com. And I'm really excited to be here today to talk to him about his time uh, starting, uh, you know, basically as a, as a, what would you call yourself? Uh, most simply a vintage watch dealer. A, a vintage watch dealer. And um, so, Eric, what first got you involved or not, not involved, but I should say uh, what first got you interested in vintage watches? And can you explain to our audience exactly what uh, what we would define as a vintage watch? Yeah. So it all started with my grandfather's vintage watch, which my uh, mom gave to me after he passed uh, right before my senior year in college. And um, that was 
very special because it was uh, a simple Hamilton watch made in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, circa 1947. It was a gift from my grandmother to my grandfather for their wedding, uh, and he wore it his entire life. Wow. Um, and uh, and it was my first mechanical watch where you you know see the gears working inside and the intricate design and it's sort of just a mind-blowing thing to think about all these parts coming together to keep accurate time uh, without any sort of external battery or other intervention. So um, that was the beginning and I started reading more about vintage watches online. There are different different terms for what constitutes a vintage watch. Um, it comes from the term 20 uh, in, in French, so something 20 years old or older uh, with regard to wine particularly. But um, this uh, sort of, there was a sort of a clear demarcation in the world of watches when in the 1980s you had a couple things happen. You had sapphire crystals come into play much more prevalent way, which is a better from a technical perspective, but because it doesn't scratch as easily, but it does cause many more reflections. Uh, you don't get to see the dial as clearly. And second, the dial is the face of the watch. Um, and second, you had computers involved in the design of the watches in both the manufacturer and design. So the sort of hand craftsmanship and artisanal nature of, of watches was sort of lost at that point for most watches. So I, I generally focus on watches from 1980 and older. 1980 and older. Um, so when you and I first met, we've actually known each other for over about 15 years. Uh, you were in college at Georgetown University, where I believe you were studying international politics. Yeah. Uh, can you walk us through the steps you took? You mentioned that uh, it was about a year before you graduated college that you got your grandfather's vintage watch mm -hmm. yeah. as, a, as a gift. Yeah. And uh, can you walk us through the steps from, from graduating college as an international politics major to the steps you took into the vintage watch industry? It was uh, definitely not planned that I would be doing this now. Yeah, I would have I never guessed it. Me neither. <laughs> um but I was always, I was interested in politics. I was interested in foreign service. Uh, I had a number of government internships when I was in college. Uh, I interned for my congressman, um, worked, interned for the Department of Defense. And, and uh, I just found that obviously public service very interesting. I was interested in running for office, uh, maybe back in Wisconsin at that time where I'm from. Uh, but I just, uh, after college, I got a job with a small boutique consulting firm. Um, we had a number of really interesting clients uh, like Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, and others. Uh, and I was doing some speech writing and op-ed writing and other, other things like that. And um, I realized I also at that time was just sort of as a hobby, like getting into watches, buying some watches from dealers, eBay, et cetera. And, uh, a blog that I came across in college right after I inherited my grandfather's watch was called Hodinkee and it was just starting out and sort of featured. It was one, a blog. Yeah. One, one interesting watch a day vintage at that time. And, uh, I got to know the founder of the blog who had started it while he was at UBS during the financial crisis. 
uh, also inspired by his grandfather's watch and Omega he had inherited. Uh, and, and then he, the blog just kind of continued to grow organically. It was just a hobby for him. Uh, but people were attracted to it. It had a very authentic voice and, uh, interesting content. And by 2010, it was getting much bigger and much more traction. And I had just graduated in 2009 and, uh, I, he, I was sending him interesting watches I saw online so he could write about them or whatever he wanted, just if I saw something interesting. And then he said, do you want to write about this watch, the story I came across? And I said, sure. And I uh, wrote about it. And he was just about to start journalism school at Columbia. So he said he'd have less time to do this. And uh, a few of us began writing and we were initially unpaid. And, uh, and then obviously more advertising revenue kind of came through for him and it grew into a massive uh, company now with 54 employees. That's hodinky.com? Uh, yeah, investors, uh, very serious investors across the range, including Google Ventures and a number of other venture capital firms. And um, I sort of did that as a hobby for five years. Do they um, do they write just about just about watches? watches. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's sort of the New York Times of watches, if you will. Yeah, they, they cover new and vintage, um, mostly new, uh, but also very strong vintage and storytelling aspect. They have a magazine now that's extremely popular. They wow. do like twice a year, um, and it's just become massive. But um, so you were right. You were writing for them while you were still with this sort of consulting. consulting. And then I decided I wanted to pursue an MBA. So I went to Oxford. Uh, I had met my wife before that and we got married. And then basically two months later, moved to Oxford wow. um, from D.C. And uh, that was really beneficial and wonderful. I learned about business because at Georgetown, I'd really focused on politics and foreign policy. Um so that was great. And then afterwards, I got a job with a biofuel company here in Florida that was focused on turning tobacco into ethanol, biodiesel, and jet fuel. Is that when you were living in the Melbourne area? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we we moved uh, from England to Florida, which couldn't have been a more stark change <laughs> in weather and, uh, and was really wonderful. And then um, during that time, I was still writing for this blog and had developed a pretty large following and, and got to know the various people at auction houses because I was covering the watch auctions uh, and I was recruited by Christie's to uh, leave the biofuel industry, which I could tell at that time was not going anywhere due to low oil prices. Right. Um, basically, OPEC wanted to kill all these efforts to, to make... Uh, synthetic, you know, alternatives to oil. And, and I just knew that wasn't going anywhere, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I joined Christie's and it was, uh, it was really incredible. So this is Christie's in New York, but you were based still here in, Florida. in Florida. Yeah. So that was, uh, obviously we had a young son at that time. We now have two kids, but we were not quite ready to move to New York and obviously cost of living is much higher. And I, in this day and age, and particularly now, everyone realizes they can basically do their job from home, depending on what job they have. Right. Um, 
So I was, I think, the first specialist in uh, Christie's 250-year history to work from home, uh, but be a full-time employee. But I was traveling about half the month. I would be in New York or traveling around the world, auctions in Geneva twice a year, Hong Kong twice Geneva, a year. Geneva? Hong yeah, Kong? Dubai. Wow. Um, and so you're at, you're at auctions. Tell us about the that experience and what what that is like. Yeah, so... Um, First off, it's 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 an incredible company because you have some of the top experts in their respective fields, you know, working there. Whether it's obviously on the watch side, but you have experts in in Russian art, you have experts obviously in modern art and old masters. I mean, it's it is like a think tank for uh, all important and valuable collectible things, in a sense. Uh, but we're all sort of drinking from a fire hose. There's always lots of opportunities and emails coming. Um, people writing in, I inherited this watch, what's it worth? People writing in with uh, estate appraisals that they want done. Um, sometimes someone passes away, you've got to value all their watches and recommend uh, them for auction or not. And it's not always straightforward with the watches. Obviously, you have to do extensive research when you see something, depending on what it is, contact the manufacturer in Switzerland uh, with all the photos and details and engage with them to determine its authenticity and originality. Um, it's a real research effort as well. And then at the end of the day, you have to get the property and then sell the property to your clients through auctions. Um, we Obviously, Christie's sort of typically would do eight live auctions a year, uh, two in Geneva, two in New York, two in Hong Kong, and then they switched from two to one in Dubai per year. Uh, but at Christie's, I sort of led the effort to create online auctions, which are kind of continuous. Uh, and that was a huge sort of boost in revenue and, and client gathering because you get a whole different subset of clients through through online auction. Yeah, that must have been interesting. So um, you had that experience at Christie's traveling around the world to some of these major international auctions in uh, some really hot spots around the world as well. And and then you added this online um, auction, yeah, um, which is continuous, you mentioned. Yeah. What, at what point, uh, first of all, how long were you there with Christie's? And then at what point did you decide you could just venture out on your own, if that's how you would classify it on your own, uh, to start uh, Win Vintage. One of the difficult aspects uh, at Christie's is you have um, more than enough work per week uh, and there is time. So, And that's just managing your own work of getting watches and helping acquire the property for auction you need to get convince the client that the reserve is okay the estimates okay get them to sign the contract logistics of getting the watch to new york or other sale sites um but um the that that was more than enough work but then you have these clients who really trust you and want you to evaluate watches at other auction houses when you're in Geneva, could you go look at this watch that's at Sotheby's or at Phillips or somewhere else? And there's no time to do that because you're just overwhelmed trying yeah. to do your own work. Um, Speaking of watches, yeah, the clock, the clock is going off. <laughs> so um, that was that wasn't planned, but no. I'm glad it happened. It might happen one more time. It if will. We're long enough. Yeah. So um, that's 
it was too much work and then they want me to look at watches they're maybe considering to purchase from other dealers or other places and i realized i had a, a real good group of clients that trust me but i can't serve them in that way beyond what i was doing at christie's um and then you know it is actually a bureaucracy at the end of the day and there are uh there are just disagreements i would have sometimes with uh different people in the company related to expenses and other use of funds. So I just decided that I had the ability and the time seemed right for me to go off on my own. Uh, and uh, I was very happy. I so did. how long were you at Christie's? Just over two years. Two years. And then how long has, have you been with, have you had been win vintage? About two and a half years. About two and a half years. Yeah. Now. Great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, tell us a little bit, uh, just going back to uh, Hodinkee yeah. a little bit. You mentioned writing for them starting in 2010. Uh, how did that add value to your experience in this industry, uh, your work today, and, and also your resume as you, as you started um, you know, getting into this field? Yeah, it was. I wouldn't be doing what I was doing without having sort of just made the step of randomly deciding to write for, for this blog that was pretty small at the time. Yeah. Um, I, it was a great opportunity to learn because when you're writing about something, you learn about it because it's out there for the world to see. So you don't want to make a mistake and people will pounce on you. So you really do have to learn what's correct or not. And, um, and it was just uh, obviously great networking. I got to meet and get to know collectors and, and dealers around the world during that time. And uh, last, it was just a wonderful opportunity to uh, just further develop expertise. You know? Yeah. Well, it's really great that you turned what, what started as a hobby into uh, a business now. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit as well. Um, so for some people listening, they may or may not be into vintage watches, mm -hmm. uh, but what makes vintage watches cool? Um, and what do you and other watch collectors like? Why do you like them? I mean, the first thing is, I think, the aesthetics of them. They're they're beautiful objects if you sit and look at them and appreciate them. Um, they have a lot of history and, and it's similar. I think anyone can really admire the beauty of a vintage sports car and sort of the beautiful lines and history. And when you sit there with vintage watches, you see the same thing. Uh, and the same thing with vintage houses and all kinds of other collectibles. Um, but, but they're just beautiful objects and they were purpose built really. I mean, you ha have watches that were made for skippers of yachts to compete in, in yacht competitions mm. or America's cup. You have watches that were designed to be, worn by Formula One race car drivers. You have watches that were made to go to great depths for divers and watches for military purposes that these were really tools that people used uh, to survive. Uh, you have watches that obviously accompanied the astronauts on the Apollo missions and went to the moon. Um, so that's all really, really special. And then the watches themselves have seen a real increase in value so that's also interesting to people and and in general they retain their value if you buy the right watch at the right time if not increase in value and there are some watches that over the last 10 years have gone up 40x in value from when i was getting into it to wow. now you know watches that were five thousand dollars 
that are now two hundred thousand dollars. That's of amazing. Um, so you've seen that yeah. rise in their yeah. value. Yeah, and and um, you know that that is that was sort of an interesting aspect when I was getting into it because you're buying something and it's pretty much if you buy it right worth as much if not more than what you paid for it. So I didn't feel like I was wasting money buying watches because you you can see that you know you're actually. So would you um, would you uh, classify yourself as a dealer? I'm a dealer now, but I'm also a collector. I've got my own sort of private collection uh, of watches. So when you're when you come across you know any watch, uh, whether it's five thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars, or something, is there is there a specific time that you uh, basically invest in purchasing a watch and sort of? taking uh almost like taking it like a stock in some sense right and it's and, what, and, and yeah hoping it will rise in value so you can sell it later that's what i do you know yeah. i've got about an inventory of roughly a million dollars so i'm wow. buying something and really betting i can sell it for more money than i paid for it yeah uh, and in in some cases you're buying something and it might need a service or you know it might need some minor repair and making sure that's done correctly and then uh and then offering it for sale and hoping that the value add put, pushes it beyond what i paid so um speaking of the value of of, of vintage watches do, does that how does it compare to the does it to the market for new watches in terms of the price fluctuations do you do you see any uh ways that um they kind of fluctuate yeah. at the same time there was um I would say the last two years, there was sort of a mania with new watches, particularly steel sport Rolex watches uh, and and steel Patek Philippe watches like the Nautilus and Aquanaut, where in the past you could go into a retailer and buy a watch like a Submariner for 9000 and it's worth maybe a little less when you walk out the door. But suddenly watches that were sort of $9,000 were selling in the secondhand market for 15,000. So then suddenly they're sold out globally and everyone's trying to buy them. Mm. Um, so we saw certain watches like the Rolex GMT Master that when it came out at Baselworld in 2018, their retail price was under 10,000 and they were selling for 22,000 um, secondhand. So that's caused this mania and I would say a lot of speculation and people trying to get these watches because they were worth so much more secondhand. Um, and that the last two years, that always seemed to me a little bit silly because these are watches in current production that the companies are were working 24 hours a day to, to put out because they're just printing money basically when yeah. they can sell every one that they make and then some. And uh, I... Well, um, also, I was going to ask you with a lot of the the rise in digital watches. Like I'm wearing yeah. one right now. Yeah. This, this this Amaz Fit watch, um, probably seventy bucks maybe. Mm -hmm. um, there's the i the Apple Watch. Yep. Um, and you know, a lot of people now, like myself, like to keep track of our steps yeah. and things yeah, like yeah. that with watches. You can't really do that with a vintage watch. Yeah. So, um, but what uh, do you watch the all the entire um, watch market? Even things that aren't considered say, uh, jewelry type watches, mm -hmm. um, whether they're new or old, but with this, with this sort of, I feel like from my perspective, there's also an uptick in these digital watches. Maybe it's huge. Them, yeah, right? that's huge. I mean, I think, um, there's a lot of different thought on the rise of the Apple watch and the other, uh, watches, the 
Fitbit, et cetera. And, and by so, the way, I don't, I'm not one of these people that has a watch, like an Apple watch. Actually, I have Apple just about everything. Yeah, I yeah. don't have an Apple watch because yeah. I really don't want email or text messages yeah. on my watch. Yeah, that's but good. there are people that do, right? Yes, they want yeah. everything on their watch. I, yeah. I don't need that on my watch. I literally, uh, I mostly have this watch so that counts my steps yeah. and I can use it when I'm running and things yeah. like that and, yeah. and distance, especially when I travel. I know, okay, if I'm trying to plot out a three mile run and I don't know the area, yeah. I, this thing will tell me my GPS on it. Yeah. Um, but 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 there are a lot of people that do want everything on their watch yeah. digitally. Yeah, and and I it's are you, you know where are you There's seeing that in the market? That, I that really the rise of those things has hurt the the sort of fashion watch, if you will, that mm -hmm. sort of like hundred dollar fossil and things like that that were selling you know really well in the past. And those, I think that the the stock for for fossil is something like one tenth of what it was three wow, okay. years ago, um, because of that rise of the Apple Watch. So um, it doesn't really affect the high end sort of ten thousand plus market so much. I have an Apple Watch, but I basically only use it for fitness and things. I don't right. like to see my emails all the time. I'm yeah. sort of plugged in enough as it is. Yeah, um, it's like you. You don't want to see your emails on there, um, but uh, most. Most real forward thinkers in the sort of Swiss mechanical watch side of things see it as a real positive because it gets people wearing something on their mm. wrist again. There was That's sort true. of a trend 15 years ago, a lot less people were wearing watches yeah. since we had cell phones everywhere and uh, it gets people sort of in the watch mode and it's they can definitely coexist. Some people wear both an Apple watch and a mechanical watch. Mm. I don't do that, but... Um, I think in general, I mean, there's different occasions for different things and uh, wearing a mechanical watch, you know, for, for business meetings or. Well, know, maybe the day will come events. when you can uh, put a little tracker embedded in your vintage watch. There have been efforts to that do can that. just connect to your phone yeah. or something. You there maybe there see are some, yeah. some companies that do that. There, yeah, there you um, go. We'll see. You think it and it's already been yeah. done. Yeah. Well, Eric, I was going to ask you, um, what are some of your personal favorite watches? Yeah, I've got a collection of maybe 40 watches in my, my personal collection. And I, I like watches with stories. Um, I have a few watches of, from this brand, Volcane, which is, they made an alarm watch called the Cricket. Mm. And uh, that watch has been worn by presidents dating back to Harry Truman. Uh, I have one with a vice presidential seal on the dial wow. that was perhaps Richard Nixon's. I don't know hmm. uh, because he wore one and was was given one in 1955 during a, a campaign event when he was Eisenhower's vice president. Um, and and I have other you know interesting watches. Uh, I just bought a Seiko recently that a gentleman bought in Vietnam and wore it as a helicopter pilot there. Wow. Um, uh, on countless missions across Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Uh, so I've got the ration card he used to purchase it from the, the PX, and um, he's become a friend. So that's that's really interesting and cool. Um, and then sort of the big trend in vintage watch collecting is condition and originality. So that the difference in price between something that's totally original versus something with some replacement parts, and that's been polished previously by a watchmaker and things like that could be as much as sort of say 40x depending on the watch so the more original and untouched it is the better 
So I, I really focus on that in my personal collection as well. Very highly original. So it sounds like you like a lot of your personal favorites have stories behind them, which yes. is good because yeah. one of the questions I want to ask you is how, when, whether it's for your personal watches or the ones that you are, you know, having for sale to clients, how do you learn the history behind those watches and how do you piece the stories together and how do you verify them? Yeah. So first you have to kind of know the watch you're buying and, and there's a lot of scholarship on this, which is all created in the last few years by looking at many examples because it's, you know, for instance, on on Ro Rolex watches, it's not like Rolex tells you anything about the watch. Certain companies will give you what's called an extract from the archives, which is a certificate that basically tells you that the serial number on the case and movement correspond together, the date of production, uh, where the watch was originally sent. Some manufacturers will tell you even who the buyer was originally um, and and sort of the specific store where it was purchased. But um, Rolex doesn't do anything, which is somewhat maddening, but also, <laughs> uh, also sort of may have helped the market in a sense because it's just a little bit of a free-for-all and you don't need to get certificates for everything you sell. Whereas Patek Philippe, you pretty much need to get an extract for a watch before you sell it to verify that it's all correct and original. Um, so yeah, you have to research that the, that all these different aspects are correct. There's more of a forensic approach now when you're looking at a watch, uh, checking it with UV lights to look at the luminous material that glows on the dial and the hands if it has that. We use Geiger counters to check radiation for watches from 1962 and before. They were Some of these watches are highly radioactive and you have to make sure that it's not been redone. Um, even hmm. people will look with microscopes at details of the watch to examine uh, that the aspects have not been restored. Um, so that's that's part of the research and then tra kind of tracking provenance, just like in our world, where did this watch come from? Who had it previously? It's not as sort of, the records aren't kept in detail. There's paintings that you can track every single owner over 500 years, but it's not quite like that with watches since it's a little more informal, the system of selling and trading and everything else, but you can look at past auction catalogs and see something sold and check that it looks the same as it did 20 years ago. Oh, wow. So uh, Eric, what are some of your, um, some of the most unique watches you've acquired or sold to clients? Yeah, so I would say the majority of my business is vintage Rolex, which is sort of the, the big uh, momentum in the collecting world has been vintage Rolex. Um, so I've been fortunate to buy a couple interesting watches. There was a watch developed in the late 1950s called the Milgauss, which was designed for engineers, particularly nuclear engineers and people working in high magnetic fields. Um, oh, wow. I bought one from um, basically the stepdaughter of the original owner who was a NASCAR driver and he got the watch because the watch was such a poor seller for Rolex uh, that they basically had a NASCAR rep who gave these out at competitions and, and for people who won uh, because it was the watch they couldn't sell basically. So yeah. I just give them that ugly watch. <laughs> um, and then I, I got one that was actually found 
in a in a house that was being torn down in Colorado last year. They were mm. literally tearing down the house and one of the construction workers found the, this Rolex in there, which is a six-figure watch. Wow. And uh, brought it to the foreman and said, uh, what, is this like a real watch? <laughs> and then it had the guy's name engraved on the back and he had a patent for separating ore uh, for mining with magnetic fields. So wow! So you mentioned um, some watches could have some radiation or magnetism. Yeah, radiation. I, I um, so some people who listen to this podcast have heard me talk about the rock boat before. It's a yeah. cruise with uh, music cruise that I've gone on many times, and I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was 2016 or something. Uh, out of Miami, we took this rock boat, and the only place we went was to Norwegian's private island in the Bahamas, oh, wow. and that's it. And so we didn't really go to any foreign destination yeah. where somebody could have purchased something, whatever. Yeah. So I only tell you this because as we were coming, we came back into port and probably 20% of the people got off the boat. Uh, my friend Kristen got off the boat before I did. And she was on her way to the airport. I kind of was getting off a little more slowly that day. And all of a sudden they shut down the, the boat. They shut down the whole port of Miami. We had helicopters circling. They had hazmat crew because as somebody was getting off the boat, um, they detected radiation oh, in wow. something. And so we didn't know everything, but what it ended up happening. So we were sitting in this port for several hours longer yeah. before we could get off the boat and yeah. before new people could come on yeah. to their next cruise lot, cruise ship. <laughs> yeah. And the reason was it wasn't a watch actually, it was a compass. Oh wow. And it was a compass that somebody had actually brought on the boat as part, you know, on the rock boat, we have yeah. all these different theme nights yeah. and everything. So somebody must've brought it for like a theme night oh, to fit wow. some costume yeah. they were wearing or yeah. something. And, uh, and so they discovered that it was a, it was an antique compass that had radiation. Yeah. The radiation was detected by securities yeah. that were coming off, and they were thinking, well, "Hold on, the ship is dirty. Bomb. Maybe yeah. come from a foreign place." You know, they yeah. always they're very yeah, careful yeah. about everything. Yeah. So that's just interesting. Like, what what could you say about? Uh, um, should somebody not bring their vintage watch on an airplane or a cruise <laughs> yeah. ship? Well, yeah. So there's a couple of interesting stories. These watches from the 1950s can be and 40s can be extremely radioactive. Um, so I knew one gentleman who was a collector traveling through Canada, and he had uh, probably over a million dollars of watches on him, mostly from the 50s. So very radioactive Rolex watches. Uh, around 1962, they phased out the the use of radium. Uh, but so when you say radioactive, uh, and I, I want to be clear, like, yeah. um, is that something that could be dangerous to the user or that is it just is, something uh, that's detected? That's a point of contention. Yeah. So there are scientific journal articles about whether these old watches are, are negative. I mean, they emit radon gas, uh, some amounts, which is obviously not a very, so back in the day, what, like when it was closer to the time of creation, what, would that have been considered? That was just what you needed to use to be able to see the watch at night. And okay. there is the famous story about the radium girls in Orange, New Jersey, who were painting the dials of, of the mm. American-made watches. And then they would lick the, the brush and most got terrible cancers. Oh, wow. Died very, very young. There's a movie coming out about it called Radium Girls, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, we'll look out for Radium the, the trailer online, but... Um, yeah, this gentleman was traveling through Canada and Canadian customs 
basically seized all his watches and said they were going to be destroyed. We're talking about a million dollars worth of watches. Wow. And he was there for like eight hours. Like you can't throw these away. <laughs> They're collector items. And, uh, it's really was quite an ordeal. He ended up having a friend in a foreign country who's a collector talk to their government and call the Canadian government and say he was just coming to a collector event in our country uh, like you have to let them through and then they're basically they gave them back and said never come through Canada again with these <laughs> yeah well that's a that's a good lesson if you have radio radioactive vintage watches which yeah. most vintage watches are not right? exactly yeah so, exactly just to be clear Eric um, as you are in this line of work how do you sort of spend what do you spend your time on and how and how what is like an average week for you yeah so um I do a lot of travel in my job. I'm probably in New York one to two times per month, typically. Um, I and is that travel. is that because that's where a client base is? Is that where watches are? A lot of my clients are there, and uh, and watches are also there, and auctions and things. Um, so so a lot of time in New York. I've got clients on the West Coast as well, and then as appropriate, I go to Geneva twice a year for the auctions. Uh, occasionally Hong Kong and, and other foreign countries as well. But, um, you know, email is very critical. So getting leads for watches that are for sale because people come across my name in an article in the New York Times or something else. And then they say, I've got this watch, what's it worth? Um, trying to uh, engage with people and um, collector groups on WhatsApp and, and things like that. Uh, talking to clients all the time. I'm on the phone a lot um, trying to either sell watches I have in inventory or buy watches from from clients and other people. Um, so yeah, it's... it's and you've obviously got through your website, winvintage.com. Uh, yeah. And I know you've got an Instagram account. Yeah. Instagram's um, been a game changer. And what's the Instagram account name? It's Eric M. Wind. My Eric M. Wind. Yeah. That's it. And yeah. then you you just, you mostly have just lots of... Watch, sh yeah, for sale. And then the price usually, and sometimes it sells, you know. And, then I and, and I'll tell you, uh, you and I were sitting around with a few mutual friends of ours uh, who... Uh, they learned about your work and they immediately got on your Instagram yeah. and were just like glued to it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure they were just sitting there for hours on the weekend looking <laughs> at it because they're so into these vintage watches. Yeah. Um, and so for those who want to kind of see some of that, some of the watches you're putting out there, they can go to Eric M. Wind on Instagram and check those out. And yeah. do you have uh, do you have watches that you showcase on your website? Yeah, I do. Yeah, there's a whole watch, watches page with watches for sale. Great. So windvintage.com. And uh, are you at all involved in repairing watches? I work with a number of watchmakers who specialize in different things, but these are guys that have studied the watch repair for years. So I don't try to mess with that. So you kind of, uh, I just let so, them. So what happens if you acquire a watch and it's not, doesn't work properly? Then it work? I work with different people for different watches. Uh, certain people specialize in Rolex watches, which require their own parts and sort of specialize in automatic movements where there's a rotor that winds with the movement of your wrist. And then I work with other people that are more specialists in chronographs, you know, from the 1940s through 1960s that requires a little different expertise and approach. Um, so yeah, I've got about four different watchmakers I work with depending Good. on what's needed. 
And how, how serious is, uh, is counterfeiting or replicas uh, in the vintage world? And what's the verification process like to make sure you're actually getting something authentic? Yeah. So, yeah, there are a lot of counterfeit parts. There are counterfeit vintage watches, but if you're an expert, you can usually detect them in about two seconds. Oh, wow. um, but, um, but they will deceive people that don't know. I mean, people have bought million dollar fake watches. I feel like you were telling me a story recently of somebody who thought, and you detected this isn't what you think it is. Yeah, there are, unfortunately times I've had to tell clients that watches they bought were not real. Yeah. uh, That was at Christie's. They spent a lot of money. Yeah. And that's a really terrible experience to to have to do that. Um, But you do have to research, you know, with, Certain companies, as I mentioned, you have to contact the manufacturer and send them photos and get the information on when it was made and make sure it's all original. Uh, For other watches like Rolex, you just have to really examine it and know what's correct or not. So this might be a little sensitive because you may have some of these watches, but uh, are there any watches you haven't been able to sell or that have been more challenging to sell? And if so, why? I would say that in in general, I've been very fortunate to know buyers sort of on the other side when I buy something, but um, I've found that people are much pickier about condition. So if I've bought something that maybe is a great story and a great watch, but has had some minor restoration to it, which is disclosed, like mm-hmm. the case being polished or things like that, uh, which is a common issue with these that it can become much harder to sell those watches now than it was in the past, just because everyone's more educated. So uh, I'm continually having to, you know, focus on highest quality and highest originality pieces. Otherwise, they are not so easy to sell. You know, it made me think. You mentioned uh, you mentioned vintage wine earlier. Yeah. Um, we talked. We could maybe talk about antique cars, mm-hmm. things like things in that arena. Yeah. And I don't know how much you're into these sorts of other vintage things mm-hmm. other than watches, but how would you maybe, do, do you have any ways of uh, comparing for people who may be into antique cars or vintage wine or other other sorts of things that maybe, I don't know if you want to classify mm-hmm. this in an antique yeah. sort yeah, yeah. of category, yeah, yeah. but there's uh, a lot of comparisons between vintage watches and vintage sports cars um, and, and older cars. In the past, everyone wanted everything absolutely restored to original, um, you know, redo the paint, redo the interior, redo every aspect, rebuild the engine. And the big trend over the last 10 years has been keeping things as original as possible. So it's really a startling and amazing thing if a car has its original paint, even if there's chips in it or dents, and if the car has the original interior and if the engine hasn't been rebuilt and all those things, because it's extremely rare to see that, um, given that these were, you know, used for, for decades. Um, so that's similar with, with watches and people like that all the parts are original, even the crystal, uh, depending on the watch and, um, that in the past people wanted everything repolished basically and restored, maybe relumed to look better and all these sort of restoration things that are now frowned upon by the community. Yeah. So, uh, are there any, um, are there any, uh, what are some of the dream watches that you'd like to acquire? Um, there's a, there's a lot, I guess. <laughs> um, there, um, there is, a a watch that I've held previously, which is uh, 
it was John Lennon's Paddock Philippe 2499, which, um, did you sell it? No. Um, it's, Oh, you just held it in your hand. Yeah. Okay. And you didn't own it. It was a gift from Yoko Ono. Um, and that, uh, that has a, an engraving on the back and it was purchased at Tiffany and company. So it says Tiffany on the dial. Um, that's an absolute dream watch. Do you remember what the engraving said? Uh, I do, but it's a magic. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, I uh, own this watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, that's a dream watch and, and, in in today's market could set the record for most expensive watch ever sold at 20, wow. 20 million, maybe dollar wow. watch. The, the record for wristwatch is 17.8 million, which was... I couldn't walk around with that on my arm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it's serious for sure. But um, that was the, the record for a vintage watch. And then just at Christie's in November, a watch sold for 31 million. Wow. Um, which was a modern paddock sold for charity. I mean, there's very few homes that are worth over 31 million. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> it was, it's incredible. But... Um, the uh, yeah, and there's there's many other great watches with great stories uh, that would be an honor to have. And we sold some really interesting watches at Christie's. I was glad to be part of, including Jackie Kennedy's Cartier Tank um, and some other really interesting historic watches uh, from from world leaders. So it was, it's really cool. What's the oldest watch you've either owned, acquired, or uh, or held? You can go back to watches from the 1600s um, that were made for royalty and things. Obviously, the timekeeping was much different than today. Uh, but that whole sort of antiquarian side mm-hmm. of, of horology is is sort of dying off in favor of modern wristwatches from... <laughs> That's, exactly. not, that's not an antiquarian. <laughs> no. So speaking um, of clocks and yeah. other things, uh, do you are you also into like clocks besides yeah. watches? Like maybe clocks that hang on the wall or uh, sit on the a little, shelf? A little bit. I mean, you have only so much space for all that. But right. uh, but I do some clocks, uh, very limited, but some pocket watches as well, depending on the piece. So Eric, um, I know that you're from Wisconsin. Your wife is from Missouri. I think you guys met in DC, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you spent some time there. You spent some time in Oxford. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, so. You, what brought sounds like what brought you to Florida was the job with the yeah, oil biofuel uh, yeah, biofuel company, mm-hmm. uh, and that you brought you to Melbourne uh, as you were making the transition from Christie's. Were uh, were you? When did you move to Palm Beach, and, and what inspired you to move to West Palm Beach? Yeah, we moved here about a year and a half ago. Okay, the whole watch world sort of comes to South Florida from January through March. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a big and Miami Beach antique show every year. Uh, this year it was early January. Typically, it's more mid to late February, but they had adjusted it because of the Super Bowl. Um, so I, I've exhibited at that the last two years. Um, and I uh, basically, there's a bunch of different watch shows then. So it didn't make sense because we lived in, you know, the Melbourne Indian Harbor Beach area. And I was having to stay in a hotel for like weeks, yeah. the first two months of the year. Melbourne but is a nice area, but it's sort of off the beaten path. It is. Bit, so yeah, this is more of the... 
It is. And there's a lot closer. of people in Palm Beach that there also yeah. that also come from New York. Exactly. Right? So uh, I have had clients that come down to visit me, which is wonderful, versus me having to go see clients all the time, uh, particularly during the season here. Of- Do you have a lot of clients in Palm Beach? Because I know uh, right across the water here <laughs> yeah. is like billionaires. Yeah, row, exactly. Much. Yeah. Uh, Not that many. Um, I would say the it still is like vintage watch collectors are still relatively small group of people but it is expanding but you have to have that collector mentality and want to want to learn about them um it's a little different than the art world where sort of anyone just wants to spend money and put it on their wall um you have to be more of a collector or detail-oriented person to get into this yeah yeah that's good what's your process of of finding new watches or i mean not new yeah yeah Yeah, new inventory I am hunting in auctions around the world all the time. The internet makes it easier because all these auction houses put their watches on their websites and other aggregators. Um, Obviously monitoring things like eBay, although you don't find a lot of great watches on there. Uh, And more than that, just focusing on relationships with different people I know around the country. I mean... Sometimes great watches walk into a jewelry store and I happen to know and have a relationship with the owner and they trust me that their client's not going to get ripped off and they can make an appropriate margin in the middle. Um, and, and that's very valuable for fresh watches. Um, we call it, you know, fresh to market, untouched things that no one, people haven't seen before. There's still billions of dollars of watches that are vintage watches that people don't know they have. I mean, mm. you you'll run into someone at a Home Depot like I have and the guy bought the watch for $200 and it's worth 30000 There's a guy and... Do you ever just like, you're standing in line at Home Depot <laughs> or something and you just see someone's watch and you ask yeah. them about it? Yeah, I do. And, 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 and I'll be like, I'll give you 30000 for that. And they'll be like, really? And I don't want to sell typically, but um, there was a, you know, a watch I purchased last year that came from the original owner in Canada and he had you know, bought it for about $200 back in 1970. And, uh, he got over $200,000 from it. So I imagine with, with the work you do, you sort of have an eye for vintage watches. So, I mean, is that happened to you in sort of daily life where unfortunately, yeah, I don't, it's not as common, unfortunately, but, but that's part of the treasure hunt though, because there are plenty of people that have multiple hundred thousand dollar watches that they paid two hundred dollars for and they have no idea what it's worth um it's not that some people obviously try to prey upon that and rip them off well i don't mean that i don't mean that i just mean does it it sort of create a little bit of a community for you like you know it might be like you see somebody that's you know maybe for me i see someone that's wearing a u.s open shirt yeah yeah, oh uh oh are you a tennis player you know is it something like that where you see a watch and like you know it's yeah. vintage and you yeah. oh are you a yeah. vintage watch yeah. collector too? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's so always it's, like and people call it watch spotting to see what people are wearing. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that. And so so Eric, um, we talked a lot about your career here and what what you're doing to grow win vintage. Uh, one of the things I like to ask people on the Agents of Innovation podcast, uh, since we have a lot of entrepreneurs, especially, is what was your very first job ever in life? So and my, and, and what and if you What did you learn from it? So two. So my first job was my mom uh, is a retired professional photographer. So particularly focusing on weddings and um, 
professional portraits, like senior portraits for, for high school, things like that in Wisconsin. So I was her assistant for a number of years uh, in the summer and helped her with her photo shoots. This was when you were in high school or? Yeah, yeah. even before I started in middle school, yeah. um, as soon as I could legally work. And uh, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, carrying the equipment around, helping her get set up and, and all of that. And then uh, in high school, I worked for our local golf course. Um, so that, that would involve, you know, get, getting everything set up on the course and uh, taking care of uh, wasps and bees nests and yeah. washing people's clubs, getting everything all set, you know, all the aspects of keeping a golf course running, um, helping man the the pro shop inside if people wanted to buy something. So uh, that was fun, you know, kind of fun summer days and long days. So um, whether it be from that or maybe just your experience now with Wind Vintage and, and sort of going out on your own and starting your own company, yeah. what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an entrepreneur? I think um, obviously trust is everything. So you you have to be transparent with, with clients uh, and both buyers and sellers. Um, so if, if I'm buying something, I'm very transparent and I've found that's benefited me. And if I'm selling something, I'm also transparent and you build trust with clients. I mean, the most important thing is to have repeat clients, I feel like, mm -hmm. rather than just putting watches out there and selling them to random people. It's not really my business. It's more developing a relationship with someone um, and helping them build a collection that they're proud of. So, uh, yeah, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, your reputation is everything. And I think we're just talking about with trust and, and clients and whether they're going to keep coming back to you and or bringing other yeah. clients to yes. you as well. Yeah, right? personal referrals are critical. Yeah. 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 Um, so what are the next steps for Wind Vintage and Eric Wind? Um, I am excited to be on Agents of Innovation podcast. Great. Put that out there. Um, <laughs> You know, press, I feel, is a very important part of my job. So continually engaging and trying to get my name out there in various publications and, um, you know, working closely with people that write about watches to, to help promote it and uh, promote my business. Um, other than that, it's, it's just kind of continuing to buy and sell watches. And um, I... That's that's the most important thing for me. So, Eric, I know you mentioned uh, you wrote for Hodinkee.com. You now have a lot of people writing about you and your watches, and um, whether it be in Hodinkee.com or all the other media sources I cited at the top of this interview. Um, given all that you have so many interesting stories about watches you've come across, have you ever have you ever thought of making a book of short stories, almost like a Hemingway-style book of cool watches you found along the way. I mean, I think it'd be great. It's I've thought I've had different people approach me with different book ideas, and I like ultimately that storytelling aspect and showing the watch. Um, so I, it's definitely something I've thought about. It's just a lot of time at this point when I'm still yeah. like in the in the grind of of buying and selling and growing the business. So I definitely would like to do a book one day. It's just a question of when. All right, great. Well, we'll look for a future author named Eric Wind. And uh, Eric, I just want to thank you for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Again, people can go to winvintage.com. They can find you on Instagram at Eric M. Wind. Any last closing thoughts from you? No, I think that's, uh, that's great. Well, thank you, Eric, for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks, Francisco. One who wheels, mark 
Let's keep them in the dark 